Before we get started, some quick appreciation to those of you that have gone on to iTunes and rated the show. If you haven't done that, click the button. I would I would ask for you to click all five stars, but, but you're more than welcome to just do four if you, if you feel so led. But no, seriously, thank you so much for your engagement, for your involvement, and for those of you that have shared the show. You are the engine that drives the conversations that we have. I, I enjoy doing them, and I'm glad that, that it is helping some of you. As it, as it is me. Uh, I would ask if you could click the Patreon button at uh, canisaythisatchurch.com. Learn a bit more about the show. If you're feeling what is happening here and you'd like to be a little more involved, your generosity would go a long way, more than you know. Welcome back to another episode of the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I'm your host, Seth. Today's conversation is going to be fun. I got to speak with a, what I would call an, a, a rising voice in, in our church, in our culture, in our community. Her name is Caitlin Curtis. She has written a book that I have found heartwarming and comforting and deeply personal. And so that book is called Glory Happening, Finding the Divine in Everyday Places. What you'll hear today is a bit of a view in the lens of our culture and our churches today, kind of the changes and the shifts in how we view and listen to God. And you'll, you'll hear a call that if we would just slow down and take time to be present, we will find and we will interact with God in a way that we are not expecting, but that will be wholly satisfying and fulfilling. And so here we are, Caitlin Curtis. Caitlin, thank you so much for making the time today to come on the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I am excited to have a, a conversation about you know, faith, a bit of your history, and, and all that that goes with today. And so thank you again for making the time to come on. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Over the past, I don't know, six, eight months after I read your book, I, I researched a bit more about you, and I, have, I, I greatly enjoy and have benefited from the work that you do. I'm... 100% certain that there will be many that are listening that have never interacted with you or are familiar with you. So can you give just a, who is Caitlin Curtis? Who, how, would you, how would you bring someone up to speed on you? So as far as my writing, I am a, um, an enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation um, in Oklahoma, which means that I am on the tribal roles of my tribe. And basically, um, as a child, I always knew I was Potawatomi, but as an adult, I've been um, kind of coming around to what that means in my culture. And so beginning to learn our language and, you know, learn it with my kids and um, learn our tribe's stories and figure out what it really means to be Potawatomi. And so as far as my writing, that's kind of where I'm at now. And so I'm a Christian and I'm a Native American and, and navigating those two things together, which isn't as hard as we act like it is, but, and that's what I want to, to bring the conversation to is that this is possible and just hits at a lot of things in our, in our nation, in our history and everything. And so I'm a mom and, um, I'm a, a spouse and a partner, a dog owner. Um, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I don't always know how to define or, or, um, explain who I am, except that, 
you know, right now kind of just focusing in on my writing and, and the conversation I want to have in the world and in America. That's kind of where I'm at right now. And so, yeah, that's, that's a little bit. From hearing that, it, it sounds like there was a time in your life that you were one thing and then there had to have been something that happened, a moment, a, a, an event. So what was that moment for you that made you want to dig in a bit to your ancestry, to your heritage, to, to your roots, for lack of a better word? Yeah. What was that? So a few years ago, um, our family was out hiking at a, a site here in Atlanta. There are a lot of, a lot of trails if you go out of the city a little bit. Um, and there's an area here. And of course, this is, so this is originally um, Muscogee Creek land. Those are the tribes that were here. And so um, if you go to a lot of these, these trails and hiking areas, it'll tell you, you know, this was a Native American site at one time. And so we like to go hiking and just learn about that. Um, but there was... One day we were hiking and my um, youngest son, Isaiah, was like one and I was still nursing him. So I had to stop and feed him. And we were in the middle of a trail and it was awkward. And I was like, I hope no one walks by. This is awkward. And and so we just kept walking and I was just, you know, holding my baby, feeding him. And um, and all of a sudden it was like God just like stopped me in my tracks and said, this is what your ancestors did on the trail of death. This is what the women who came before you did with their babies. And the trail of death is from the Potawatomi, uh, we started in the Great Lakes region of the U.S., and then we were, we were moved. And so, you know, you've heard of the Trail of Tears, and mm-hmm. our trail was the, called the Trail of Death. And and so God just, it was this moment where God was like, you know, you've known your Potawatomi for a long time, but it's time for you to to really know <laughs> what that means. And And it was just like a, you know, just a switch just flipped on. And I knew in that second, like, that something drastically changed in me and and that I was faced with this decision to make that I in in some ways you can't choose who you are but in some ways you can you know <laughs> yeah. and so I had to decide you know for my children do I want them to know more of what it means to be Potawatomi and and so our two boys you know I'm looking at them and and realizing that and as soon as I got back in the car I just like wrote it all down I just started writing cuz that's how I process things so um and yeah it just it just started me on this really intense, um, hard, beautiful journey that is where I'm still at today. I've heard you inter- being interviewed on other podcasts, and and I've heard you speak a little bit, and uh, there's a few clips of you on YouTube. I haven't heard anyone ask you this question, though, and so I'm curious. How has your reintegration as a Christian into your tribe and your heritage, how has the tribe and the people that have always been there and maybe they are or they are not Christian. How have they responded to that? It's been really, really great to um to to reconnect with my tribe because we moved away from Oklahoma when I was really young. And so I haven't been connected to my actual tribe in a really long time. So now going back there last summer we drove through that area. So I was able to go to our tribe's headquarters and um I've published in our, we have a a newsletter called the HowneyCon and they've published me a few times in that. And, and so it's really cool to, to feel connected to a community again, even though I don't know them personally, I don't know a lot of the people of my tribe. I hope to one day, but I'm far from them, you know, but to, um, yeah, to have their support. A lot are Christians in Oklahoma. A lot are Baptists. Mm -hmm. (laughs) A lot are maybe Catholic. So, you know, a lot, a lot of the people in my tribe are also um, Christians and some aren't, but yeah. So, so the support from them has been really cool and just learning our language and having that support as well, at least online through our program and through emails and any way that I can be connected from far away um, has been really 
um, encouraging. So your book, it's titled Glory Happening, Finding the Divine in Everyday Places. I've, I've read it twice now. I find it extremely easy to read and also extremely fulfilling because the stories are truthful. They're stories that you hear at church or that you hear at work or that you hear at the, the soccer game. But so what was, what was the purpose behind writing it? What, is, what are you tr- seeking to do? You know, one of the, the things that, that I believe is one of the most powerful ways to bring people together is through storytelling and story sharing. Um, I think we need more of it in the church, honestly. It's awkward because you don't know what people are going to say or you don't know how that's going to work in a church service, but I honestly think we need more of it. So yeah, I basically you know, was at this point where I was becoming more aware of what it means to be a mystic, I guess you could say, learning about the mystic tradition um, in Christianity, and then also learning about my culture, kind of these two things coming together and realizing that all of that connects through stories and through my life. Um, and so what I hoped that when people read it is that even if, you know, if you read it, you're not a mom like I am, Mm-mm. but I, I hoped that people can read those stories and think, oh, this reminds me of something that I've been through or you know, this makes me think of something my mom went through or some, you know, that's what, that's what storytelling does, right? Mm-hmm. It's a reflection of us and of others. And it just, it just helps us mirror each other and see each other. And so that's, um, what I hope. And it was really cool at, uh, Christmas, my brother-in-law who's Haitian was reading it and he just stopped and looked up at me and he said, I, I can see my own stories in this. Mm-hmm. And I just like started crying and I was like, this is, this is it. You know, that's exactly what I wanted for this. And it just made me so happy that that was his reaction after reading just a few pages. That was exactly what I wanted for yeah. it. Yeah, I can relate. The the story, and I don't know why, but the story that I seem to relate the most with is that story that you talk about you and your husband and you have to give a, a message or a talk and your car's busted into. And I have never hiked where he has hiked, but I have been provided for in a way that I wasn't expecting when I knew I had a need and no one else needed to know. And it just, mm-hmm. it, so I connect, I was a server through college and just that happened constantly. And I don't really believe in coincidence. And I, I connect with that. For some reason, I gravitate to that one most often. Um, so what then is glory? How do we see glory? Uh, and, and more specifically, how do we slow down to actually be able to see that glory? Because a lot of your stories, there's an intention. It seems to be an intentionally calm yourself down, mm-hmm. relax a minute, take a breath. Yeah. So how? What is glory? And then how do we? How can we seek it? So I, um, you know, growing up in the like Southern Baptist Church, when you hear the glory of God or you sing hymns with glory, you know, I would always think this like very majestic, you know, like glories out there or God is like shining down glory on us. But I never thought of it as something like tangible for me to hold, you know, or to see. And so one day I just looked up the definition of the word and it, and it was like something extremely beautiful. And I was like, well, you know, that can be a lot of things, you know? And, and so I just started realizing like, oh, this, this story from my life has glory in it. And this story, and you know, in the Bible, there are different kinds of glory of God. You know, if you want to get more biblical and, you know, look those things up there Mm -hmm. like different, you know, glory can be like a weight where things are really heavy, but you know, God is there or glory can be like fire where everything is just like, you know, ablaze and you just know that God is there. And so, so that's just what started happening. We were living in this like tiny apartment, but for some reason it was like, I just, I knew that God was there 
And I knew that even in spaces where it was uncomfortable or we weren't always content or whatever, we were still being invited into these moments of quiet and of glory. And I'm, I'm not a um, person who likes to sit still, I actually like always moving. And mm-hmm. so um, training myself to do that has actually um, in the past few years been really challenging um, and really good for me to make myself stop. And how have you done just, that? Um, well, about, uh, a year and a half ago, or maybe, what is it? 20. Um, yeah. When, like when standing rock was happening in North Dakota, um, Mm -hmm. with the pipeline and and all of that stuff, I was, you know, watching live feeds of this happening constantly. And I realized after a few, or maybe a week or two of that, my body was starting to like shut down on me. Like in the middle of the day, I was just getting exhausted, like, like just completely, exhausted. And I realized later that, um, it wasn't a physical problem, but it was actually an emotional, like my, my mind and my heart were so tired from processing something so difficult that my body was like making me rest. And that was like such a good reminder that a lot of us are probably like that. A lot of us are processing really heavy things or we're so busy that we don't stop to process anything. And I think sometimes literally you just need to like lay on the couch for an hour and read a book (laughs) or watch a show or do something where you make yourself stop or go outside and go on a walk and just be quiet, you know, and see yourself in nature. And those are all things that are hard. And when you have a family, it's hard. And when you're working a full-time job, it's hard, you know, Mm -hmm. it's hard, but I think it's, it's necessary if we want to have true rest, because especially just with how volatile everything is right now, at least in America, um, I think we need it even more to to be able to have hard conversations. We need to be able to rest and find glory, you know? This past Sunday at church, and I know there's a lot of churches following the lectionary, uh, mm-hmm. our pastor preached on uh, the transfiguration in Mark, and, you know, you saw me do this, but you can't tell anybody. You really need to wait mm-hmm. until, so so have some patience there. Um, but he, he took it in a, in a way that I've never thought of, and then as I was thinking about talking to you today and I reread your book over the weekend, he talked a lot about that there are thin spaces, or he believes that there are just thin places either in yourself, in your conscience, or on a mountain in ancient Israel, that you can experience the divine if you just, if you will just lean in and allow the thin space to be there. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that, I don't know, it spoke to me for some reason. It's odd how everything seems to line up at the same, at the same time. So, but I like the idea of thin spaces. Yeah, that, yeah, I do too. And that over the past year or so, it's, that's come to have different uh, words for me. Like I, I think it's the same idea, but I, I keep developing different, um, language to, to use that, you know, like tethering, I call it tethering sometimes, or people call it presence, like just being present to the moment. One time I remember I was in Sunday school class and I, we were talking about that. And all of a sudden it hit me like, um, in the, the Chronicles of Narnia, like when that wardrobe, there's literally just all that's between them and this magical world is, the back of a closet, you know, and, and that was like, so it just, it hit me in that moment. Like we're literally all, all that we, you know, there's just this, this thin veil or this thin wall. And that's like all that, all that there is between us and this space that we couldn't, you know, possibly imagine or dream of that, that holds so much for us. Yeah. And I think that's, that's beautiful and it's constantly there. It's just whether we want to enter into it, you know? Well, it's, it's hard because Especially, I think in our culture in America, we're we are programmed to 
A, be busy, but but most importantly, to excel, to always win. And you have to drop your pride, at least for me. You have to drop your pride and your walls to enter oh. into, a, into a thin space. What has been the the most interesting or the most surprising thing is you've dug into your heritage that that has surprised you that you've been like huh i would have never thought that this was true or huh this really connects with me what has been that one thing that that has impacted you oh man <laughs> there's so many things really uh one thing that has been really good for me is you know because i grew up thinking the bible was literal and like these things happened and it was like this and you know i've just i don't necessarily believe that anymore Nobody hate me, um, but I like I, uh, <laughs> I, I agree with you, but I don't yeah. hate you. Deconstructing, you know, those parts of my faith and realizing that metaphor is actually really beautiful, and and this is that the Bible is a historic, a historical document, and you know, just things like that where I'm like, it's it's a piece of literature. When I started learning like our tribe's creation stories, it was just so cool because I was like, there are commonalities between them, so I was able to lay the story I grew up with from the Bible of creation with, you know, our tribe's creation story or the Cherokee creation story, like they're, every tribe has their own there. So there are tons of them, you know, we all um, have this different idea of how the world was started, but to have these, um, these layers of metaphor and these beautiful stories um, kind of come together, just made my faith so much richer. Um, and it made me so much more excited to teach my children in that, like to, to, to have them see that culturally we have these different ideas of who God is, but at the same time, God is so much bigger than all of it, you know? And, and that just made me, it made me realize that the landscape of learning is so huge. And like, there's so much to dig into, um, in the Jewish text in the Potawatomi text and the, you know, like the Greek text, like all of these, all of these cultural lenses through which we see everything. Mm -hmm. Even in our Christian faith, there's so much more in the landscape than we realize, you know, and that just um, it makes me really excited to learn. And that'll be a lifelong learning, you know, that'll never stop. Yeah. So. Yeah. I've, it's funny. You, it's odd that you use the word deconstruct. I've heard you say in the past that we should, as opposed to deconstruct, we should look as a way to not decon deconstruct, but decolonize faith. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that when you say decolonize? Particularly in in the case of um, indigenous peoples, you know, the U.S. was started by the work of colonizing, right? Mm -hmm. Their Europeans came and they said, and Christians or Catholics or, you know, they came and said, hmm, you don't look like a Christian. You don't look like you love God the way we do. You need to mirror who we are. So we are going to convert you, you know, and colonize you and assimilate you, kill you. <laughs> and so like all of those things coming together created a colonized Christianity. And some people, you know, say it's, it's empire mixed with religion, these things coming together and it creates that kind of space. Um, and so what I, what I want to do is, um, and what I hope other cultures will begin to do and people of color and all of, all of these ways that we've distorted the gospel to, to benefit you know, white people, mm -hmm. um, and white Christianity and American Christianity that, that we would, um, begin to, to come back to our own cultures and say, you know, the Jesus of the gospels doesn't, doesn't hate my Potawatomi culture or my Potawatomi faith. You know, the, the God that, that we worship does not, um, look on 
indigenous peoples and say what the Europeans said in the beginning, you know, um, of this nation. And so it's, I mean, it, it consists of a lot of work, but I, I kind of paired the decolonizing with the deconstruction because I'm breaking down the things I learned as a Baptist and I'm breaking, you know, as I'm doing that, I'm realizing there's so much about American Christianity that is a colonized religion, you know, and, and is a controlling. So so I hope that answers it. I'm still I'm still trying to figure that out in my head, like how to to verbalize what it means. But just to to know that Jesus accepts who I am, mm-hmm. that I don't have to go to church and break off my Potawatomi part of myself and just go as a white woman into the church and then leave. And when I leave that place or those people, then I can be Potawatomi again. That's not how it should be. How do you then? How do you navigate faith that way and remain any version of of orthodox? Because nobody wants to be called a heretic. Or, or does orthodoxy even matter? Um, it's hard. It's hard to be part of an institution um, that that has been complicit or silent when it comes to what has happened to indigenous people. You know, the um, Indian boarding schools, which a lot of children were taken from their families. The whole idea was kill the Indian, save the man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, those were run by Christians. Those were Christian um, schools and institutions. And um, you were take your Indian name was taken and you were given a Christian name. Your hair was cut, your, you know, whatever, your clothes were burned, anything traditional was gone. And, and you came out as an assimilated American, you know, that was the whole goal. And, um, and so it's really hard for me it's hard to be a part of the institution sometimes, but that makes it more important to do it because I, I need to go to church and I need to constantly be asking questions and like nitpicking as, as exhausting as it is, you know, I, like we have to do that because, you know, African-Americans are doing it constantly mm-hmm. in their churches and, and other people of color are doing it constantly you know people with disabilities are doing it constantly if they're not seen you know they're just like women <laughs> who are not seen or doing it because we're trying to figure out what it actually means to follow Jesus and um yeah it's it's so complicated and exhausting but yeah. if we don't do it then we're just going to keep doing what we've always done yeah, and, I, and you have to challenge it you know yeah I agree I I assume and I'm probably wrong maybe I'm not are you, are you familiar with the work of Mark Charles yeah. At all. Yeah. So I spoke with him not long ago. The stuff that they don't teach Americans, it doesn't matter what your culture is. They just they don't teach you mm-hmm. is is so horrible. And and as as I spoke with Mark, I was like, I don't I feel unable to even hold a conversation because I don't know the foundational history to even have one. Sometimes talking about in, indigenous tribes. Am I wrong in saying that indigenous culture overall, or indigenous you know, Native American culture overall, is 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 entirely more matriarchal than the culture that we live in now. There's there's more emphasis on motherhood, the right. a divine womanhood, or I'm probably right. saying it way wrong. Is that correct? Well, I I can speak for my for the Potawatomi tribe. You know, from what I, so I'm I grew up in the same educational system as everyone else. So like I even grew up thinking. I grew up not realizing that who I am is a Native American just like who the people in the history books were. Like I had a disconnect because even I was taught the cowboys and Indians and the savage and the bad all the bad stereotypes that you're taught. Mm-hmm. I was taught those too and they were ingrained in me all the way through school. And so it's like 
finally as an adult being like, that was not, I'm a Native American and I didn't even learn the right things, you know? So like I'm learning all of them as an adult now. And, and I've talked to a lot of other indigenous people who are the same thing happened. Like as adults, they're finally like realizing all the horrible things they were taught in school. And so, yeah. So anyway, what one thing that I'm learning is, and that's important for me is to speak for, you know, myself and my experience and my tribe. Um, and to, and for people to realize like of all the federally recognized tribes in the U S how everyone is unique and different. Um, so even when we like start to think, Oh, okay. So, so Caitlin's a, a native American. So we're gonna, this is must be how it works. And I have to consistently say, no, this is how my tribe views it, you know, but, but for the Potawatomi, um, women, are really important. We are the protectors of the water, you know, so like everything that happened with Standing Rock and how they talked about women are the water protectors. And there's this idea, you know, you carry your baby in a womb of water and water is life and um, all these different ideas and like visuals that there are, but literally that reflected in nature. And so women, yeah, it's not patriarchy. It's not where, or misogyny, where men have the say over everything and the women are just silent and just do their thing quietly. It's not, it's not like that. And, and there may be some tribes that are or have been, but the more that I learn, I think that there is a, a dignity that women have that is not had in kind of what has become American society. And in the church, this is a huge conversation. You know, can women lead? That's not even a question. Because I know it's tearing Spent so many years drowning in my own tears, but now I know. So, as of late, uh, you've had some disagreements, most most notably with with Piper, and then I saw that was picked up by a a Christian publication, uh, Relevant, and I tend to agree with most of what you say on that specifically because as i've come to deconstruct what i thought of god i see god more often in my wife than i see him in me she's entirely more empathetic and loving and caring than i i don't think i could learn to be what she just is naturally which seems to be more of the god of the new testament as opposed to my yeah. version of do what i said i'm the dad we'll pull out the dad voice God of right. the Old Testament. Uh, and I think the church has done a disservice by shelving the voice of our women. Right. There's no better way to say it. But you spoke about that, and, and Piper took umbrage, and you took umbrage with him, and there was a big beef going on there. So what has been the biggest thing, not to rehash all of that, that has been encouraging that came out of all of that, of you calling him out? and Yeah. Well, you know, so I... um. When things like that happen, I, I really want to like turn to people and, and ask, you know, them to respond because instead of just, you know, me and the other person having a giant argument and people jumping in and out or whatever, I, I would rather, you know, have, ask a question of society and see what happens. And, um, that's what I did with that. I, you know, tweeted and I said, if you're a man, who are the women who have shaped your theology? Basically saying, you know, instead of me going to Piper, which I'm not sure he'd answer me on Twitter, but if I went to him and, you know, tried to ask him, why would you say this or whatever? And to be fair, um, you know, I grew up with 
with men that, that led me as pastors who are just like John Piper and I love them and they're wonderful men. And so my intent was also not to, to like make him a villain because it's, it's, it is an institutional thing that we've created and even women are a part of it. You know, even women, um, have also continued this cycle in ways. And so I wanted to look at, look at what was happening and say, okay, this is a problem in my opinion what are the thoughts of the men on Twitter? You know, like if you're a Christian man or even not really, I just wanted, I wanted, um, men to, to name the women in their lives who have affected or taught them or shaped their theology. And I thought maybe like five guys would be like, Oh, my mom, you know, or my wife, my, you know, I had a pastor once who was a woman. Um, but it was like just an overwhelming, um, response. And it just, it gave me so much hope for the church because, um, it made me realize, and it wasn't just mothers or grandmothers, you know, it wasn't just family, but it was literally just naming all these women in, in so many different intersections of their lives that where they just, it may not have even been a long interaction. They're just like these moments that shaped these men for the rest of their lives and shaped their views on God and taught them and um, that gave me so much hope because um, we have to do it together. Like men and women have to be a part of this. It can't just be split where gender, you know, one gender thinks it'll work and the other doesn't or whatever. Like it has to be together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was amazing. It was amazing how people responded. It was fun to read. And yeah, I, yeah, I enjoyed I've I heard names and I saw names that I'd never heard of that I've since, since begin to read and Mm-hmm. I, I think I've come to the to the the conclusion that I, I'm pretty certain our women theologians may be better at this than our men theologians. It's just there's no textbooks written yet by them. So I'm excited for the church in say 90 years. It should be it should yeah. be, it should be fun. Yeah, I won't get to benefit from that, but maybe my maybe my grandkids will. Yes. And so yes. you you referenced it earlier your walk and I'm assuming you're talking about your walk at Sweetwater one of those pivotal moments and and I I saw you do a reading online of that and one of the things that you said in there is we cannot forget who came before us if we are to fiercely love those who come after us those being our children or yeah. uh, people from wherever countries or whoever we are called to love which is humanity the people that bear God's image so with that in mind and thinking about our church and church as a capital C, what is the one thing that we can do better to engage in our heritage, not just Native American heritage, but any of the heritages? What is something that we need to work to do better to make sure that our church in 90 years or 100 years is not still dealing with, well, they'll have to still be dealing with some of this baggage, but it's not as angry as it is now? Right. Good question. I think that we are um, really scared to be truly vulnerable with each other. I think people, because you can type so many words on social media and never actually see another person. You can lash out on social media and never see the person or know the person. Um, There's something about if you want to intentionally live in community with other people and not just like an individualistic society like America is, but like communally, even the way that like the, the church began as a, a community oriented thing, that's going to require a lot of vulnerability and, and not just like, this is my experience, but 
um, to actually listen to the experiences of others and teach our kids to be able to do that, boys and girls, you know, because we we don't always like to listen, really. We like to we like to assume a lot about each other. And and that also comes back to storytelling. It comes back to experience. But also, you know, that's the, the big conversation right now is how did this how did this uh, nation really begin or what was slavery? Is it still impacting us or and a lot of times even indigenous peoples are still left out of the conversation. We're kind of like, hello, like the nation began with us, yeah. <laughs> you know, and yeah. um, to be vulnerable in that conversation and for the privileged white to listen in the church, that would change the institution eventually. You know, if we began person to person in community, maybe it would ripple out, but there has to be an active work of listening and and sharing experience without getting so upset or angry. Um, and everything is just so like heightened and, and intense right now that it's hard for me. It's hard for me to even imagine that still, Mm -hmm. but I have those snippets of interactions on social media and in person, um, on Twitter where people are like, I'm listening, you know, and that's really encouraging for me. And so I think that it's possible I just think we have to get there. Somehow. Yeah, I hope it's possible, and I yeah. I think we can get there, and I'm I'm so hopeful that it's possible. Well, we're we're at the end of our time, so Caitlin, where can people engage with you, interact with 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 the work that you're doing, and, and others that are doing it like you? Where would you point people to for that? So you can I have a, a website and a blog. It's CaitlinCurtis.com, um, and also I'm uh, pretty active on Twitter, and that's where a lot of just conversations happen about you know, all the things that are going on. Um, and that's, so that's a good place to find me is, uh, Caitlin Curtis, um, on Twitter. And I write a lot for Sojourner. So if there are pieces that people might want to read about, um, you know, just stuff that's happening in America, um, I write on relevant magazines sometimes and at Sojourners as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. So in closing, I had a request of Caitlin. It's a little bit different. And so as you go out and you get her book, and I highly recommend again that you do, you'll see at the end of each of her stories a prayer that she has written. And it is a way to reflect. And so I've asked Caitlin to read one of those in closing. So take some time. If you're listening to this while you're driving, pull over. But find a quiet spot. It's not long. And enjoy this in closing. A quick prayer for each of us today and tomorrow and the next. Jesus, teach us to redefine our world. May we redefine all the words we once used for our own benefit, and may forgiveness not be for the heathen, but for our own tired selves. May lament, joy, honesty, and compassion lead us toward investing in the love you first started when you breathed your first breath. You teach us what it means to redefine our world. Amen. Grows too